0: guys. Um, so today we're going to be talking about the resurrection, uh, which is kind of a difficult topic to talk about because it's always <laughs> the question of how much do you cover the actual doctrine versus the, you know, we got to make sure we're talking about the right thing. We're all on the same page before we get over to the apologetic side of it. But um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to gauge that as much as possible because I have way too much content <laughs> then to cover classic problem of teaching, right? Is that you have too much to cover. You have to kind of figure out where you're going to clip it. But um, let's uh, pray with me when we pray that I I figure out what is beneficial and what to, to trim out. So let's pray real quick. Ask the Lord to help. Father, I thank you that you have given us so much. We bless you and we praise you that you have created this world and everything in it. And even though it's been marred and uh, it has been affected by sin. And so we see things like disease and death. Father, we still look at it, the amazingness of how it's constructed in its intricacy, how it's pieced together, how you keep us alive, Of uh, even in the midst of that. You, you give us immune systems and strength to get through these things. You give us the church, you give us family to support us and to help us. No person could do it alone, and you knew that. You wired it to our very beings that we would be relational creatures. And we seek the relationship with you. We want to know you, Father. We want to know uh, what you would have to say to us. I thank you that you give us the Bible, that you have given us a clear word that we can read and understand. And even if we struggle against it because it, it it's something that offends us because of our sin. Yet you guide us through that, Father. And I pray that's what you would do now in this uh, this lesson. You would Help us understand what you would want to say to us. That you'd help me communicate that to this class in such a way that they can grasp and they can hold on to it. And then there's some um, some strategy or some way for them to, to use this in apologetics. That's the the goal that I'm here and this goal I'm trying to communicate, Father. And um, I don't know what it's going to turn out in the next hour. So I pray for your help that you help me help me communicate that. Help the listeners to understand. And I pray that you would stir up us, stir up in us this desire to to preach to other people, and to communicate the truths of the gospel to save people, to be an instrument to save people. Help us now to focus and and bless our time together. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so the resurrection of Jesus is a core doctrine, and I think one that we would readily confess. It's not rocket science for a lot of us. But I want to ask a question that was kind of bothering me um, for the last couple weeks when I've been thinking about this question. And you think about the curriculum, you think about, okay, what am I going to talk about next week? You, you do research in different places. Sometimes you say, okay, this research goes into this section of the pile, you know, because as you're doing it, it kind of bounces off each other and you divvy it up. But one thing that I was thinking about was, you know, when I'm in a gospel encounter, you know, when I'm on the street, I'm talking to a person and they ask me about the hope that is within me, right? Sometimes you get those nice softball questions where they actually ask you, okay, what do you believe? And you're like, oh, great, I'm glad you asked. And then you start going. I was thinking, how many times have I brought up the resurrection? You know, how many times have I thought this is something they need to know and believe in order to be saved, right? Because that's the thing we always have to pick and choose, right? How much doctrine do you need to know? Do you have to say, okay, hold on, before I tell you the gospel, do you understand the Trinity? 100%. Let me break it down for you. Here's a graph you know, of, you know, the circle and the three, you know, like you don't do that. You trust the Lord a lot of the times that he's going to fill in those gaps as a person's heart's changed. They can kind of grow in this knowledge that you can't get to them in five or 10 minutes, right? It's impossible to get all of it, right? We read the Apostles' Creed. You're going to break down the Apostles' Creed for a new Christian? Like, hold on a second. It took three sermons for us to break down all that meant to a, uh, a modern audience. Like maybe people back then kind of understood it. And it would definitely help in a sense of a cultural Christianity where people were growing up with these things enough that they kind of pieced it together. But if you watch Ray Comfort, um, when he's talking to people, he'll ask them, is there anything in your Catholic background that would be a solution to the problem you have? And just blank faces, no idea. Can't even tell them. "Mm, I don't know. What about Jesus? Oh, yeah, maybe Jesus. It's like that's how far removed we are from, like, the tradition of going to church, growing up, maybe being baptized, but going and then actually understanding the connection of what Jesus did to save us. And the question is, is it important for us to communicate to people in a gospel encounter the resurrection, right? That's the first thing I said, because if that's not really an issue, then we can kind of say, okay, let's, let's merge this with another lesson for next week, right? It's it's kind of a footnote, oh yeah, it's kind of important. But no, it's actually very important, I think. And this is why I think they've included it in this curriculum that we started with. So let's turn to Romans 10, uh, verse nine. And we're going to turn to two places. You'll have it in your notes, actually. I, I listed both, and I just want to read both of these because this is my uh, attempt at making a proof text of that, yes, it's important and it's something we should know and it's something we should try to work into a gospel presentation if possible. Romans ten nine. So this is the classic text that a lot of people would memorize, probably the first part of it. maybe the whole thing, but it's a very classic uh, text that people will memorize, verses uh, nine through 11. It says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So here, I wanna point out to you that we always think of the first part, confess Jesus is Lord right but there is a belief in this resurrection from the dead that's also required right there is this is actually quite important and i think what paul's doing here without having to exegete all of romans 10 that what he's pointing out is that the resurrection kind of encapsulates jesus being god right so confess that he's lord yes and that he is god in his resurrection right that he is the creator because, and you'll see the the parallelism here that Paul is using, right? The idea of confessing and believing is the same as uh, believing and being justified, right? Justified and saved, right? They're the same kinds of synonyms. He's kind of tying it all together. He's simply saying that this confession and belief are two sides of the same coin, and you need both, right? You can't just say Jesus is God, because anyone can do that. You need to believe in your heart, right, that God is uh, has raised him from the dead, right? This is, this belief, this ability for you to believe that God really did raise Jesus from the dead is kind of a signal that you are actually saved, right? Because if you just say Jesus is the Lord and you think you got fire insurance, write it down, right, you've gone to church and you say that, but you don't actually believe, like, eh, I don't know about that whole virgin birth and Jesus rising from the dead. It's a little far-fetched to me. I think that's when you start having to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Because this is actually a core doctrine, now the next one we're turning to in your notes is Acts 1730. Give a couple seconds. Acts 1730. And this one is, uh, you know, Paul on Mars Hill, and he's giving this uh, explanation to these Greeks. And at the end of his dissertation about God, you know, he kind of connects it to the cultural icons and says, you know, you have this statue of the unknown God so on and so forth. Here's this real God that exists and it's not these idols that you have. And then at the end of it, he kind of wraps up and says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. It's interesting. I've heard Ray Comfort use that portion, right? He's commanded everyone to repent. He's appointed a day we will judge the world in righteousness. But he left off that last part right? He's left off that last part. He's given assurance by raising him from the dead. And as you go through that section, you'll see what's what's the immediate response. People start mocking him when they hear the resurrection of the dead, right? The next verse says they heard the resurrection and they started mocking him, right? It was actually something that I thought about. I'm like, yeah, that's, he's a good teacher. Most people say, okay, yeah, sure, right? Um, He's a messiah. Well, there's other messiahs. Well, okay, fine, whatever, right? You've probably heard this from atheists and things like that. Resurrection from the dead. Okay, now there's a claim that is supernatural, it's divine in nature, right? It is sets him apart from other people that couldn't do these things. And that's when they're like, okay, I was entertaining you for a while and now I'm just gonna say, uh, I don't know about this, right? There's some people like, maybe you can present more evidence to me, right? They say, oh, we'll hear you later on this. I think that's the polite mockery, right? There's the open mockery and then there's like, come back later when you have more evidence, right? I don't think a lot of those people, uh, I think that we read it in a very kind way when we realize that they're just kind of politely saying, you're crazy. So you can see how the world reacts to this news, but Paul didn't shy away from it. He knew that this was core to preaching the gospel. So now I have to kind of back up. So I've, I've said, this is important. Now let's go back and say, okay, let's read a couple of things that talk about the resurrection in order so that we're all on the same page about what it is exactly. There are many references to the resurrection of Christ, obviously, because it's being important. And we wanna make a distinction between the perfect resurrection of Jesus, where he got a new body, right, and he's immortal, and the temporary resurrection that you see in other places in the scripture, right? Jesus raised three people from the dead. I'm assuming those three people died again, right? Maybe Lazarus was one of those people that got caught up when he came back. But there was other people, like there was uh, Jairus' daughter and the things that got resurrected in the Old Testament that has happened too, right? Other people have raised people from the dead. Um, it's very rare. I think it only happened twice. But it has happened. So you have um, a perfect resurrection and a temporal resurrection. So we're talking about the permanent one, the, the perfection, that eternal life he talked about. So out of all the references, minor and major, I picked two. I think they're in your notes. First one I want to turn to is Hebrew 5, 7. while you're turning there, Hebrews 5, 7, and this is going to go for a while, so I'm going to read this, and then we'll, we'll kind of stop. Um, about this, we have much, oh, I'm sorry, started a little too early. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, who design- who being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have, the, who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, and of destruction of washings, and the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, obviously... I have to pick the clipping points here in this passage. It's great. But I love this section because it's it, there's a lot of definitions in here that most people don't know, right? Like it's we, we hear these terms all the time, but we don't even we don't really think about what they mean. Like people will constantly refer refer to milk and meat, right? Oh, I want more meat in this sermon or rather than milk. But what do they mean by that? And here you actually have a definition, right? What is milk in this section? Right? If you look in verse 13, it says, the person who the, the analogy of milk is the person unskilled in the word of righteousness. So if you don't know how to handle the Bible, that's actually what it means to be a child, right? It's like, oh, you don't know what to believe. And just like as a child needs discipline, that's the same kind of analogy. This is what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. But solid food is for a person that not just knows what the Bible is, right? They don't just have read it, but have, they've had their powers of discernment trained right? By going out into the world, seeing different kinds of acts, and being able to segment that into the Bible says this about that. The Bible says this about that, right? This is good. This is evil. This is good. This is evil, right? So the only way you can do that is one, by actually experiencing life and... This is kind of the idea behind maturity anyways, right? Anything in our life, if we say this person's mature, it's because life has happened to them, right? They've had to work a job. They've had to take care of themselves. They do their own laundry, hopefully, right? You know, there are, there are certain things that make people mature. You can see it on them. They carry themselves with that sense of, I know how to live my life and take care of myself. Oh, I okay. you probably could take care of other people, right? This idea behind maturity. This is the idea behind elders teaching people, right? They're mature. They can teach younger people about the word of God. And it says you should be leaving these elementary doctrines, not forgetting them, but how if you have to rebuild these elementary doctrines over and over and over again and you never move past anything, you'll never have a greater understanding of who God is and what he wants from you, right? If you're constantly having to lay this foundation of, okay, let's cover faith towards God again, right? That first part in verse six, right? Okay, repentance from dead works. I mean, works can't save you, it's faith toward God. Instruction of washing, laying on hands, we don't have so much problems with those now, but there are some, um, I think, some sects that still struggle with that. Resurrection of the dead is part of that, right? Do you struggle with resurrection of the dead? You shouldn't. It's elementary. Eternal judgment. Do you struggle with, el- with eternal judgment? I'm not talking about you, you find it hard, like it, it's distasteful to you or you just dislike it, like you struggle with it that way. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, do you deny it? Do you that that's the thing? Because this is what the writer is saying, is these are elemental doctrines. So you, you have this resurrection of the dead, and I want to make sure that we're on the same page because as he points out, and in a weird way this is comforting, right, is that the people back then struggle with the very same things we struggle with. Like the same people that he's writing to, you could be like, I know a person like that. Right? Maybe it's me. Maybe I struggle with one particular doctrine. You know, I, I'm constantly having to go back and think about that again and again. So, yes, Julie. I'm sorry. Are we allowed to make comments on I'll repeat it. Um, yeah, you can make a comment, but you're going to have to say it really loud and projected or I'm going to have to repeat it. So, how much work do you want to give me? <laughs> Yes. And as parents as well, I would say that's big with the younger individuals. If they're not being taught how to live life or how to discern and all that, well, guess what? The process is going to probably take a lot longer. Right. For individual to mature, um, just even intellectually, you know, if you're a Christian, you apply the word of God into your mind. Right. And you can say, okay, in that situation, this is what the Christ, what the Christian thing to do is, right? hmm. No, uh, and I'll, I'll repeat it if anyone heard it, what he was saying. He was saying that, yes, I mean, maturity is a person who has experienced life and has taken care of, but he's also saying, but you also want to be able to be taught those things too. You don't necessarily have to experience every single thing to know I shouldn't do those things, right? You don't have to, you know, be sexually immoral, immoral to know that that's wrong. You don't have to experience it. And the way I always think of that is I heard someone say, I can't remember to attribute it, but they were saying there's two ways of learning in life. There is uh, history being taught by someone, right? Here's my history, here's why you shouldn't do that, and experience. And a lot of people put a lot of weight on experience. Like, I need to experience it myself. But the, hi- the whole idea behind being taught by your parents or by a mentor is they, I've seen this before, here's how you should do it. And the faster you listen to someone you respect and you trust, the less pain you have to go through, right? Because experience is much longer if you think about it. This is why we have books and we read them, right? It's because like, I don't wanna have to do the whole experiment, the scientific experiment, and spend all that money and time to, to know what this thing says and is justified by, you know, five different re- repetitions of the same experiment, right? So we do this all the time with all kinds of stuff. And the Bible is obviously a big example of that, right? God says in, in Proverbs all kinds of wisdom that you should just listen to. You don't have to do it. But if you don't, you're going to go through some pain. Well, but the Proverbs isn't it's not. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, uh, one that, uh, that's to um, gonna go in that No, you're right, you're right brother. It, it was he's just saying that um you know proverbs aren't absolute. They are they're not they can't be because people are all individuals, right? You're not training a robot when you're training your child up in righteousness, right? You're training a human who has their own mind, their own will, and they're sinners, so they're going to do their own thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you can see why the writer to Hebrews is frustrated then, right? Because he's like, you should be teachers at this point, but you're not, right? So let's move on. We have 1 Corinthians 15. This is the second passage I want to read. This is obviously the... uh, the, the big one that a lot of people, when I was asking about this from some other brothers, this is the one they were thinking of. And I agree, this is the, uh, if you want to know one passage to go to to talk about the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the easiest place to go. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me it was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though, I was not, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Now, you'll see in this section, he, he references this idea of According to the scriptures, according to the scriptures, this wasn't something that was new or that they made up, but he doesn't stop there. He also gives evidence to the church, to the believers of the, the eyewitnesses, right? The apostles that saw him, the 500 eyewitnesses. And he says, there are some, they're still alive. You can go and ask them about seeing Christ. So obviously this was a big evidence in the early church because these were people that they could actually ask for their eyewitness testimony. And in here, we kind of have a mini apologetic, if that makes sense, right? We have the Old Testament as, as witnesses, right, that this was happened. Then you have the apostles, the apostles' word which we have in the Bible, and you have the personal testimony of other people. So what do we see here? We see that Jesus was raised according to Scripture, and then, you know, Paul goes on to give evidence. And let's, turn, uh, let's continue on in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. Especially think about the context in which they're written, in which they're being persecuted, right? This is, it's it's not a good life to hold on to. If all they had to do was, you know, turn away from Christ and go back to being, you know, to Judaism or to, you know, submit to the Roman authorities and they're deciding not to do that and they're telling other people not to do it, to live in suffering, then they should be pitied because they are basically living a lie. I think it's the same way I think of when I think of people that are in false religions, especially cults and stuff, right? They're, they're living this. They're so dedicated to it. They'll give up entire portion. I mean, I remember there was one guy. I think his name was Harold Camping. You guys remember that name? Long time ago. Uh, I say that now, like, right, eight years ago or something. And he thought he had done some numerology, some kind of mathematical equation to figure out the end of the world. So he said, oh, it's going to be, I forget when it was, 2015 or something like that. It was about that time. And people would take out massive loans and sold their houses and bought giant billboards and it's coming and they would have like these big caravans they were traveling around. They went to massive amounts of debt and then guess what? The world didn't end and they were stuck with all of this, right? In some sense, you think, well, how did you believe something when the Bible so clearly says you can't know the end? But at the same time, you pity them because like, man, their lives are ruined because they believed this guy. So that's an analogy. Like Paul said, if the resurrection from the dead is not real, then it's like that. We're misrepresenting. God. We don't even know who God is, right? Because I'm saying God said this in the scriptures, and I obviously don't understand the Old Testament. If I am saying this to you, and it's not true, so he's really he's making the point very clear. He's really hammering this away. You see how many times he repeats it. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Christ has not been raised, right? This so you can see that even in this early church, we have this problem of people probably from maybe like former Sadducees or something like that where they denied the resurrection from the dead and they were saying, well, it's not that, you know, it's, it's something else. So you see all of the points he makes. If the dead are not raised, then the people that have already died, there's no hope, right? If we're living for this life only, when you think about how many scriptures there are that say you should be focusing on Christ, being with him, the, the, the completion of all things, him coming back and fixing everything, That comes from this idea of eternal life, of being made whole, right? Having sin taken away, but you're still a human. You're still yourself. You're just now back like in the Garden of Eden where you have no sin. Uh, Verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each to his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So God p- goes on here to point out that Jesus was the first fruits, the first uh, person to experience this perfect resurrection, right? We understand. He came back from the dead, and he wasn't just a spirit floating around. He ate fish, so he was physical. He They touched his hands and his sides. They felt his physical body. So he really had Resurrected in a true sense, not a ghost wandering around and not a vision that they saw, he guaranteed it by showing he this guarantee of showing this to the apostles was so that Paul later could write this this uh letter in which he basically describes this eyewitness proof but notice that then there's so much to say in this section um, about the idea of uh, you know, he must reign, so he's reigning right now. You know, it's not something that he's waiting to reign, that like the devil in some way has control over this world ultimately in the sense that Christ can't do anything. It's like, no, he is reigning according to this. You know, he is actively putting enemies under his feet. Um, you know, we were as enemies. I think we talked about this in the first lesson. We were as enemies of God, and yet we are now been saved and now we are a part of this kingdom that Christ is going to turn over to the Father and then also receive the crown himself. And we're waiting for that last enemy to be destroyed. Um, We talk about the problem of evil. This kind of ties into that too, right? Why is there evil in the world? Why do people die? Why is there pain and suffering? And you see that the last enemy to be destroyed is this death. When God puts all things in subjection, he comes back, he makes everything new, and he resurrects all of us into the true eternal life, which is being with him. Not in some mystical uh, way where we're up in a cloud with a harp, you know, I'm a fat baby with wings or whatever, but I actually am myself Um, there's always fun questions to ask about that. You know, will I get my hair back? Will I be taller? You know, will I be like, you know, will I be buff without having to try? You know, the, like, those are fun questions to ask. We don't know what that's going to look like, but we know it's going to be amazing because we'll be with Jesus. So that's the sections I wanted to make sure we all got on the same page, right? That we we believe the resurrection is important and we talked about these passages where it's clear that Paul is saying not only is it important to believe, not just saying or just because. It's important because it literally ties into what Christianity is all about, right? That we are living this life telling people, obey the gospel of Christ, submit to him, right? He is Lord, he is reigning, right? Don't don't fight against him anymore But because you don't have all the time in the world, right? Either you're going to die and have to face him or he's going to come back and you're going to have to face him. So we're warning, we're, we're missionaries in that sense. We're ambassadors, the, the scriptures say. So, In that, we should not shy away from sharing this idea of resurrection as part of the reward for believing in Christ. Believe on Christ. God raised him from the dead. Why is that important? I'm glad you asked. Because what you want, what people are always striving for, this desire to not have pain anymore, right? To not lose loved ones. That is the promise Christ gives us as well as our sins being forgiven, right? They're tied together. So, the next section is going to be defending it. I'm going to basically talk about, and this is in your notes, kind of the, the series of defenses I would give if someone was questioning if this is true. And this doesn't come up a lot. But if it happened, this is the, the way I would do it. Um, any questions of what we covered so far before we move into the next section? No? OK. Did you have one? Good. Uh so, so the question I have is uh so in First Corinthians fifteen, uh, I may have missed the point you were trying to make. Uh isn't the uh, the resurrection like that isn't Paul defending the resurrection before the church uh rather than an unbelieving crowd? Right. Okay. Yeah, the, he was asking if if Paul is writing it to the church rather than an unbelieving crowd, and you're right. Uh, we brought up Paul talking about Areopagus in the beginning part where he was defending it in front of Greeks, right? The idea that at the end he says, you know, uh, God has proven this by raising Jesus from the dead and they all mocked him, right, at the end. So there is a sense in which it's important for both groups to be talked to. My point when bringing that up in this section was that we all need to understand what the resurrection is before we defend it, right? If you don't believe it's important, you're not going to bring it up in a gospel encounter, this is something that I struggled with when I was even was thinking about this. How many times have I shared the gospel and not included resurrection from the dead as an important element of sharing the gospel, right? But when we read in the first part, you'll see the, the couple passages in the beginning and these ones, they seem very important, right? It's actually connected to salvation. So I would say that you can't do it every time, right? I'm not saying here's the template, follow it every time to the letter, no modifications. You have to feel a person out, you have a conversation, they a person right? They're going to have questions. They might derail you. But understand that resurrection is, is an important aspect of Jesus' divinity, right? He's not just a good teacher. He, ra- he was raised from the dead. He said he was God, and it, that's how it was proven. At least that's what the scriptures say, is that this is the proof that he was who he said he was, was the resurrection from the dead. So if you have uh, more questions, we can handle it afterwards um, if you have more something specifically, unless you have a specific question. Yeah, give it give some thought, and then we can talk about it afterwards. Any other questions? Okay. So defending the resurrection. So here's the overall idea. If you're talking to a person, and they're asking about Jesus, and um, how do you know this to be true, right? I'm trying to frame it this way. It's like, okay, you believe in this Jesus, you believe he rose from the dead, but how can you believe that? Isn't that unbelievable? Isn't that a wide claim? So you, you start at the base. Okay, Jesus is a big deal. You can see that through... Uh, the, the, the amount of influence Christianity has had on the world. don't want to believe this, but you see it everywhere, right? Especially in America. Um, this idea that even if you don't believe in Jesus, you know who he is. Number two, Jesus was a historical person. So this is something that has come under a lot of fire. Uh, we talked a little bit about this in the, the historical, um, uh, when we were talking about the reliability of the New Testament that this is something that's attacked a lot. Is Jesus historical? Was he, did he really exist or is he just a teacher that kind of blew up? Well, it's interesting because I actually think about that's one of the reasons why he, didn't, he wasn't a big deal, right? Because if he was this big deal, right, people could say, well, he got mythologized because he's like King Arthur. He was such a big name that people started writing mythologies about it. It's interesting when you think about the fact that he, in terms of his ministry, it was very isolated to Israel people ask that question, like, why was it so small when it first happened? I mean, it was big in Jerusalem, it was big in Israel, but it never expanded, right, on purpose. Jesus would do stuff and he'd say, don't tell anyone, right? It's like he was purposely containing this. They're like, go up to the the festival. He's like, I'm not going to go up. I'm not going to make a big scene. I'm not going to have a parade. He ended up going as not a part of the the march up to it, but he didn't want it to be a, a, a big deal for some reason, and that's confusing, and i think that there is a, a reason for that there are, you know theories i should say i don't know I 100% but even though he was relatively small you really couldn't escape the notice of someone when you were healing people and all the stuff was happening so one of the uh, most influential accounts we have is from a jewish historian named flavius josephus who was born in 8037 he became a pharisee at age 19 and he writes about him we also have a uh, um, another guy named testus i think i'm saying that right And he was a historian writing about 50 years after Josephus wrote, and he said, Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea Judea in the region of Tiberias. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out again, not only in Judea where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. So you have a kind of a footnote, but he does mention this this thing that's happening. Um, I don't think that's ironclad proof, but it's one of those things that, Like, we still have sections from Josephus and Tacitus about this Jesus character. He was undeniably a historical figure. And I would say, and I've made this argument in the reliability of the New Testament, the Bible itself is also a historical document. They want to say you can't use the Bible to prove historicity, but that's ridiculous. I mean, anything we know about history was written by people that obviously could be argued that they were biased in the writing of that history, right? So Christians go one step further than simply saying that Jesus was merely a historical figure. We also believe that the history of Jesus and the words of the prophets serve as a show and tell or to, say, to say, a four, thousand of years of history. So number three: Jesus is the point of the history of Israel. So this is something that I found is really thought-provoking and powerful, and I'm sure you guys have used these, these techniques before too. And that's this idea of structuring talking to someone and saying, God didn't just do certain things in the, in the Old Testament, just because. There's a lot of things that happen that are kind of odd in isolation. And then when you understand they're about Jesus, they make a lot more sense, right? So you have this idea of he wants to show Messiah is coming. And so he's saying, this is why I'm going to do it. And then he shows what this is going to look like. So in the fall, in Genesis 3.15, God tells Adam and Eve to look for a deliverer, a human, a supernatural that would defeat Satan, but Satan would wound, right? We know that story. There's not enough time to go through it. Abraham and Isaac, you know, Abraham is told to bring Isaac up onto the mount and to sacrifice him, and that he was going to, uh, basically the idea here is there's no higher test of loyalty than to give one son for another. God will preserve the seed of the promise, right? All these things were working together substitutionary offering is necessary, God provides for people's needs. Um, There's all these themes but it's just an amazing story when you think about it, right? He brings his son up, son asks, you know, uh, where's the sacrifice? (laughs) I'm carrying carrying the wood on my back like Jesus carried the cross on his back, right? He's going up and he's like, where's the sacrifice? God will provide, right? Gets up there, gets ready to kill him and, you know, the angel stops him, substitutionary, right? Oh, look, there's a ram in a thicket, like a crown of thorns on a male lamb. <laughs> Let's kill that instead. It's very, it's very interesting the parallels that happen, and so it's kind of an odd story. And a lot of atheists hate it because they're like, he told him to kill his son. But when you look at the picture, it's, you know, it's clearly a, a picture of Christ in an amazing way. Egyptian captivity and Passover. God demands sacrifice. Another one, right? Kill the lamb. Put his blood over the wooden doorpost, and the angel of death passes by, and it doesn't kill you, right? So God demands a sacrifice. The firstborn son represents the family. So he's the one who takes on himself the, the sin, right? when the, the, For the Egyptians, their firstborn was killed for the sin of the entire family, right? Apart from sacrifice, everyone, even the chosen people deserve death, right? If they didn't do this substitutionary blood, if you're a Jew and you did th- didn't do this, you would still be treated the same as the Egyptians, just that they had a way out. Uh, the next one, the scapegoat. In Leviticus 6, 16, God declares that one day a year there will be the Day of Atonement. And on that day, people are reminded that the sins of the people must be forgiven annually. Right? People are always sinful. It just basically covers them for a little while. Only a perfect sacrifice is acceptable. Once the sacrifice has been accepted, God sends it out from the people. Sin is transferred to the scapegoat and then sent out into the wilderness to be remembered no more. And so God was using these events of Israel, just in a quick overview to point to and prepare the Israelites for this idea that they need substitutionary atonement to gain forgiveness of sin. And then uh, number four, Jesus was spoken about the prophets of Israel. God sent prophets to explain and predict who, what, when, where, and why of Jesus. The, the Bible contains over 300 prophecies to testify to and were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Let's go through a few examples. Uh, who? I don't think I have this in notes. Uh, who for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace that's isaiah 9 6. so that's who what because you will not abandon me to the grave nor will you let your holy one see decay that's psalm 16 messianic prophecy talking about jesus so this is where we get the idea of resurrection where? But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be a ruler, ruler over Israel. That's why when the wise men were asked, where is this person going to be born? Oh, well, the prophecy says he'll be born in Bethlehem. How? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, right? How will this happen? The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and we will call him Emmanuel. This is Isaiah 7, 14. So here, this is why he had the virgin birth is so important because this is part of the sign of the Lord doing it. This is something, these were the things they were looking for, right? Born in, Israel, in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, right? Um, and that this person will be this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then Isaiah 53, and perhaps the most instrumental prophecy, the chapter so, cap- so perfectly captures the message of Christianity. Jesus Christ is clearly the fulfillment of this amazing prophecy and it is worth you know, reading it in full, and it was written in 680 BC. This chapter is preserved on the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were dated before the time of Christ. So even if people want to say it was changed in some way, this was something we found in a cave and we dated it hundreds of years before Christ was born. It says, surely he has taken up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us turned to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep bore his shear was silent, so he did not open his mouth. And obviously it goes on. It's just an amazing thing. I, we're, well, the only reason I'm cutting off is because we of we're running out of time. But if you read the entire thing, the amount of prophecies that, that relate to Jesus is just incredible. So number five, Jesus' claims to be divine are corroborated by his life, teaching, and miracles. Yes, he was a wise teacher. I don't think anyone would dispute that, right? The golden rule that people repeat all the time are attributed to him. You know, do unto others as you would have done unto you and love your neighbor as yourself. You have some challenging ones, like love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, right? Jesus helped others with his miracles. We know that he performed 23 healings, at least recorded, and that nine, uh, nine displays of command over nature. I, I would consider that the feeding of the 5,000 in that category, right? This amazing ability over physics and matter to be able to replicate food, uh, calming the storms, which think about it. If you calm the storm immediately, what happens to weather patterns, what happens to the wind? What happens to other places, right? It's like, if we just try to stop weather in one place, it would create chaos everywhere else, and yet that didn't happen. Walking on water, once again, just, you know, manipulating physics to however he wants, you know, outside of the rules of the universe. And then he brought three people back from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son, and Lazarus. So that's obviously something that... Uh, is outside of what we consider natural, right? For God, it's not a big deal. Uh, I think C.S. Lewis said it's like, you know, if you create a pond in your backyard and you go out and you tap the pond and you create ripples, it's not a big deal for you, right? You're like, I made the pond. You can tap it however much you want, right? Um, And so in a way, Jesus doing miracles is not a big deal. But for us, we look at those things and they're amazing, right? If you saw someone doing this, if you were in the time of Israel and you saw a man doing these things, they would instantly get your notice, you would instantly start listening to this guy, right? These aren't things like, oh, you have a headache, now you don't, right? Kind of the, the fake healing we have now. You, uh, you know, like I'm talking about the uh, uh, faith healers now that we have. These are undeniable things that people knew these people for years and years and years, and full restoration of eyes, limbs, it's an amazing thing, right? Like leprosy going away. But Jesus makes some claims that are kind of a paradox. He's this good teacher, he does these miracles, he helps people out, and then he says, I'm above the law, right? He says, no one needs to fast while I'm here. You have your laws and your rituals, but I just do what my father tells me to do. Listen to me and you'll have eternal life, right? Um, The way that the people had structured their society, right? It was the idea of, like, there's this chain of command, right, the high priests say this, and then the scribes and the Pharisees say this, and then if you're some guy, you have to be a part of the system, in order to do what you want. And he says, no, um, I'm actually above all of you. I actually have the authority. And when I speak, God speaks. Well, I mean, like I said, we hear that and say, of course, he's Jesus. But at the time, just think of how earth shattering that would be. He claimed to be able to forgive sin. In Luke chapter five, there's a great crowd around Jesus. We just talked about this, uh, I want to say about a month ago. And, you know, there's a whole cut in the, in the roof of the house and the guy, the paralytics lowered in the mat. And he says, your sins are forgiven. He takes upon this ability that no, one, no man should be able to do. And he claimed that no one could know God except through him. John 14, six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So what are we saying here? We're saying that he claimed to be God. He claimed he was going to rise from the dead. He did these miracles. He said, I'm above the law. He's like, I'm the way, the truth, and life. He's making all these statements and so when you're communicating with a person in an apologetic, if, if they're saying he's not historical, you can prove he's historical. Well, how are they, why is he important? Well, the Old Testament shows that Jesus was going to come and that he'd be important. Well, isn't he just a good teacher? No, he claimed to be God. He claimed to rise from the dead. He claimed all of these things. So I don't know if you guys have ever heard the classic C.S. Lewis trilemma conclusion, the idea of either he's uh, Lord He's a liar or a lunatic. Liar, lunatic, or Lord, right? No. Yeah, and legend. or And that's what we kind of covered with myth, right? Is he a myth, right? So either he was a, uh, I'm, I have the C.S. Lewis quote here. It says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. And that's, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of thing Jesus said could not be a good moral teacher. He either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he is a poached egg, or else he would be devil, or he, else he would be the devil. You must make the choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with some patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. So number six, Jesus' death and resurrection cannot be explained away. Right? They are God's exclamation point. God used a word picture through a nation, Israel. He used prophets to predict it. He used Jesus' life, teachings, and claims, and then he used God uh, raising Jesus from the dead. As if he said, okay, Here's something that either is from God or it's not. So what happened in Jesus' last days? Um, I really should have put this in your notes because it's probably too long to read. But we'll say this. Jesus died and was placed in a tomb, right? And in the reading of the accounts of the Jesus' passion, his crucifixion, we notice certain details. He was up all night facing trials. He was whipped with long leather uh, crown of thorns, crossbar to Golgotha, nails placed on his hands and feet, spirit placed on his side, right? All these things, historical and what happened. We see that Jesus was really dead. He was placed in this tomb, right? The Joseph Arimathea. There was a large stone rolled in the way, right? One to two tons. Guards were placed there, a Roman detachment. The Roman was seal was placed on the, on, the, on the tomb, right? To confirm and to warn, not to grave rob. So jesus was really dead in the sealed tomb and yet three days later the tomb was empty right so not only do you have the physical damage done to jesus but you then he's placed in a tomb for three days and guards and a stone and all these things like if you want to lock up fort knox type of thing situation and yet if you go in and all the gold is gone fort knox has gold in case you guys didn't know the reference right you'd be like something amazing has happened here right there has to be an explanation so what are the explanations we have from uh, either atheists or Muslims? One, Jesus swooned. He didn't really die. That's what Muslims believe. That somehow he was just really hurt. He was laying in a tomb, you know, bleeding out. But yet, somehow, he survived and the, the disciples found him and they kind of nursed him back to health. Impossible, right? Impossible that that would happen. The Romans knew how to kill people, right? It's not like they would accidentally, like, I stabbed him in the side – He's like, I'm, st- I'm not dead, it's just a flesh wound, or, you know, that reference. It's like, no, they knew he was dead. And even if he wasn't dead, maybe he was still bleeding out. He would have died in the tomb, right? You don't su- suffer that man or that, that much physical damage and then not receive any medical attention and live. Uh, number two, hallucination. Uh, I actually read a, a passage that said that people believe that a bunch of people, 500 eyewitnesses, ate the same kind of bread that had blue mold on it. They all had a mass hallucination together about Jesus. Uh, yeah, there's some wild theories out there if you if you look for them when you ask people, well, what happened? Like, well, you know, this bread was popular. We know this blue hallucinogen grows on it. So they all ate the same bread and they thought he came back. It is dumb. Um, but, you know, that's where you have to go if you deny 500 eyewitnesses. That's why there's that many, obviously, right? But even not even those people, we know that his own disciples in the Gospels express doubt about it, right? We always give doubting Thomas kind of a hard time, but the fact is we would all be doubting Thomas probably, right? Like if we, we would all be like, if someone said, oh, we saw Jesus and you were the only one not there that didn't see him, you'd be like, I don't know, Are you guys pulling my leg, right? But Jesus, in his mercy and his grace, show, comes to Thomas and says, Why are you troubled, and why do, do doubts rise in your mind? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. So, um, explaining the resurrection as hallucinations it's not pl- plausible. The next one, the body was stolen, right, by either the Romans or the Jewish authorities. And it's, it's interesting that in the gospel, we actually have that as an explanation, right? Um, they, they think that that happened and they actually start creating they, the reason why they put the soldiers there in the first place was because they thought that was going to happen right? the disciples were going to steal it but when the Romans come back the Jewish authorities tell them just say that they stole it right? they, they spread that rumor because it's, it's, at least that's plausible at least that's a plausible explanation for what happened but we know that that's not true either. That's, that's uh, not only according to the scriptures, but just the idea that the Romans would go along with something. when they're, they're the ones over the Jews. They're the ones controlling them. There's no way that that would happen. They're not going to appease the Jewish people that way. So the most plausible explanation for the empty tomb was that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. So then that's the question, is how do we live now in light of that? That's what you communicate to a person as you're talking to them. Here's all the evidence. Now, you have no more excuses, right? There's no way that you can. This and this is kind of the point of apologize, right? Is to take away the excuse of well, I can't believe because of insert the you know fill in the blank of whatever this thing I struggle with is. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the problem of evil. We're talking about you know resurrection is for these reasons. So there's more to it. You'll see in your notes that the idea of the changed life of disciples and the changed world, uh, the church grew immensely, and that. Our personal testimony jesus changed lives throughout history and he's still changed them i mean we all have a story like that of being one way and being changed more dramatically for people that have that come to faith older right because they t- sometimes have very um colorful lives if i can say it that way and yet their hearts and their minds changed completely it's an amazing thing so i want to leave just a few minutes here at the end to ask some questions or any comments that we have about that or things that you've encountered about questioning the validity of the resurrection, or if that's not something you guys have encountered much. Anyone? Oh, Sheila first, and then Christian. I was just thinking in, as far as witnessing, and, you know, people are usually understanding that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, mm-hmm. and I feel as if I tend to just say that, mm-hmm. and not as all completely connected, that I'll do better with saying the whole thing in that Jesus lived a perfect life, he went to the cross, and then he was buried, rose on the third day, and ascended to heaven mm-hmm. instead of just Jesus died for our sins. right? But just marrying those five things together and always saying it in that way right, would be helpful. Yeah, what Sheila was saying, if you guys didn't hear, was you have to connect not just that Jesus died on the cross, but that he also rose from the dead. And even when you were saying that, I agree with you. I don't think I've done that either. And I'm realizing that that can create problems because you think about how many groups out there that think that Jesus was just a higher created being, like we talked about Jehovah's Witnesses, right? They, yeah, he died on the cross, but that he's not God. God used a perfect man in some way to create the substitutionary atonement. But then you start, it starts getting broken, that idea that Jesus is God and this is why he had to do this and resurrection from the dead, right? So, any other questions or comments? Christian. Christian. Mm-hmm. Nobody likes to be preached at, like I'm preaching at you all right now. <laughs> to be at, but allow them to answer your question because then it makes them think, oh, I know more than he does. And you'll fall, hopefully, with the help of the Holy Spirit, you will be led to a point where they cannot deny anything. And then you have to say, well, it's up to you now. Right. You know, it's like we were saying before in the in this course that what we were trying to do is we're trying to answer objections but also give the gospel right and that's always a difficult thing because there's so much to discuss even amongst ourselves the bible is very complex right there's so many different uh, rabbit trails if i can call them that um, to go down and to pursue and so to try to keep a person on course is or keep a conversation on course is very difficult even amongst ourselves it's hard to keep a conversation on course but I will, I will agree with you. I've, I've had multiple times in my life where I've talked to a person and they say, you know what, I have no logical response to you, but they still deny that Jesus is God or that they want to believe in him. They'll even say, oh yeah, Jesus is God, but I don't believe in him or I don't want to. And I think that at that point, you have to realize that what you have to communicate is no longer the answers to difficult theological questions or, or historicity of Jesus or if the resurrection happened. What you have to communicate to them is that they have sin and that they Have a problem, right? As Ray Comfort says, you know, by your own admission, you're a lying thief and adulterer at heart. As you talk through those things and they admit, yeah, I tell lies. Yeah, I've stolen stuff, small stuff. Yeah, I look at pornography. It's like, okay, you don't think you have a problem? You have a problem with your heart and you need something. What happens when you die and Jesus judges you based on your own words? You know, and planting those seeds of doubt in their own goodness, I think, is a bigger key sometimes. Answer a question but come back to them. What are you gonna do about your sin? Let me tell you the good news, right? That God himself came to earth to die for your sins. He lived the life that we could never live, a perfect life, and he made the great exchange in dying for our sins on the cross. But he rose on the third day, proving that he was God and that there is this eternal life. Not I'm up in a cloud as a baby, right? Like we keep making the joke. He, He promises true eternal life here as a person like he showed himself to be right? You don't have to let that go and somehow be some kind of nebulous thing we can't understand, right? Your existence now won't be substantially different than what we have now. Um, And that's the promise that God's made to us, right? That he's not going to banish us to some realm someplace, but rather he's going to fix all the problem with evil that we have. One last comment. Yeah, if anyone know. wants this uh stuff, you can always ask me for it. Do. Yeah, okay. I'll I'll send and it to you. Right. It goes through 11 chapters and it goes through a lot of that great apologetic. That's a good thing. Brother Marty Right, it's, it's very small. Yeah, Brother Marty was saying More Than a Carpenter is a great book to buy. It's very small. Um, you can find them in thrift, thrift stores. They were very popular at that point. But they are. it is a great book, and it does do a really good job of summarizing a lot of this. It's something you can give to a person. It's small so they don't feel like, oh, I have to read this entire thing. you know. Um, and so that communicates a lot of the ideas of the resurrection as well. More things to say. If you have any other comments, come and ask me. Like I said, if you want a copy of this, I can always email it to you if you want, because I've skipped through a lot of it. But, um, you know, it's... Uh, I'm happy to provide that. So let's close with prayer. Father, again, um, we bless and praise you. It's an amazing thing what you've done in the scriptures that you have given us so many pictures of the Messiah and that you have told us what you were going to do so many times. The fact that you know and can control the future, that nothing surprises you and that you have a plan is so encouraging to us because we know that the future is set, it's certain, and that you will come back and you will fix this world. You will... Rule and reign, you'll put all enemies under your feet and you'll defeat death. And we hope and we pray that that comes quickly. I pray, Father, that you would uh, give us grace and give us mercy in our conversations with our loved ones, our friends, our family, that when we preach the gospel to them and we answer these objections that they have, that you would soften their hearts, that you would open their minds, that you would change their hearts. God, we we pray for that more than anything, that our words would not be in vain, but rather we would be given the right thing to say by the Holy Spirit and that we would pierce their, their thoughts and their intentions, that we would be able to recall scriptures that we've read to bring to bear. Father, use us as mighty tools so that way we can save the people we love. Don't leave, don't let them, in their, don't leave them in their sin. Use us as instruments for your glory. In our own lives, I pray, Father, that, we would, that you would help us with obedience and you would help us with holiness so that we would be effective tools from the Master. I thank you, God, for this church. I thank you for our pastors. I pray now that we would focus our hearts and our minds on you on the Lord's day. Forgive us our sins. In Jesus' name, amen.